The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's the first episode of our latest series, number six, and this time uh, we're talking cocktails with Shannon Bay, the first American to run the Savoy's American Bar and only the second woman to do that job. We'll hear about her journey from pastry chef to master of mixology and find out how to make the perfect serve. Uh, to do that, you'll need our recommendations, of course, from the IWSC's medal-winning spirit selection. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It is one of the world's most famous addresses. So Shannon Tebe made history when she became the first American to run the American Bar at London's Savoy Hotel. She was also only the second woman to be put in charge. Uh, the first, Ada Coleman, uh, performed the role a hundred years ago, more than that in fact, uh, described at the time by the Daily Express as the world's most famous barmaid. From Albuquerque, New Mexico, a one-time pastry chef, Shannon Tebay made her name at New York's celebrated Death & Co, an intimate haunt in the East Village. And she's now beverage director at Outernet London and also head judge for the IWSC, where she'll chair the spirits and mixers category. So, Shannon, welcome, first of all, to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you as well. It might surprise some of us to hear that your career in hospitality, given what you've done behind the bar, actually began in the kitchen rather than behind a bar. Yes, that's correct. I'm, I'm from New Mexico originally in the southwest of the U.S. and went to New York when I was 23, I want to say, for graduate school in painting and drawing. So again, a completely different sector and fell completely in love with the food, the eating and drinking scene and culture in New York and promptly dropped out of grad school and decided to go to culinary school instead and found myself at the French Culinary Institute studying pastry arts. Started getting involved in, in that world while also moonlighting as a cocktail waitress at a tiny little bar in the East Village called Death & Co. I mean, uh, uh, pastry, what's not to love about pastry? What's not to love about cocktails, frankly? So there is a, a common thread there. But, but did you find that um, doing a kind of a chef job gave you a special set of skills for cocktail making? I would, yeah. And I, specifically that of a pastry skill set, I think. Um, you know, in, in a, a place as disciplined as French Culinary Institute, you learn how to work very, very cleanly and very organized. And um, I, that all obviously translates into a bar environment in a very important way. Uh, you know, you, I think about things like mise en place, as I do in the kitchen when I'm behind the bar, I think about everything having a home and a place, but also just general kind of order of operations and, and methodology in general. Um, and then with regards specifically to pastry, you know, you're thinking about precision and being able to replicate things to a, a very specific degree and uh, working specifically with 
sugars and fats, you know, and there are any number of parallels that, that come into play. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm a, a really keen amateur cook and I'm, I'm definitely uh, at the amateur end of the spectrum, but um, but I'm a, a complete shambles in the kitchen. I can never find anything. <laughs> I make a dreadful mess. And, and actually, if you're running a really busy bar, presumably an element of, of, of kind of kitchen style discipline is really important. Absolutely true. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. How did you then go? Uh, you mentioned you were working on the side, if you like, as a, a cocktail waitress. Um, how did you kind of fall for the world of mixology? It honestly was complete happenstance. So I had decided to go to culinary school and had moved it to the East Village just because that's where I found an apartment that I that I liked and I liked the general kind of vibe and culture and, and energy of that neighborhood in New York City. And once I began culinary school, I, I needed I needed a job on the side and Death & Co. just happened to be right around the corner. I saw an ad that they were looking for a hostess and I just marched in and <laughs> threw down my resume and tried to charm the manager into hiring me and, and somehow it worked. And from there, I started learning about cocktails and cocktail culture and history and whilst doing that alongside pastry school, it clicked in, in my brain that these two are the same thing. And if I like pastry and I like cooking and I, and I like being in a kitchen, then I also would very much like being behind a bar. And so I was d- decided to kind of take everything that I was learning from a culinary school perspective and applying it to the way I was thinking about drinks and learning about drinks and, and bar culture in general because of that same sort of draw to the, the energy and the nightlife and, and uh, working with, with people and, and you know, doing something for a guest. While, while being a, a chef is wonderful and, and great fun, it's, it's more often than not that you're behind the scenes and being able to interact one-on-one with guests to me was a big draw of leaning towards the bar culture rather than the culinary culture. We should um, perhaps introduce Death & Co to those listening who've not been there, who are not familiar with it. So tell us a bit about that bar. Absolutely. Uh, Death & Co is a cocktail bar in the East Village in New York City. It opened on New Year's Eve, uh, transitioning from 2006 into 2007. Right around that time was when you know, you have Milk and Honey kind of coming into the spotlight, places like Pegu Club uh, and Death & Co. very much fell into that category of the seminal New York cocktail revival scene. Um, and it really created a name for itself in that way and created, well, out of that bar came what we now think of as, as a great number of, of modern classics and some of the, the world's best bartenders worked there and opened and cultivated that culture in that bar. And I am very privileged to have ever had the opportunity to be a part of that team. They have a, uh, an amazing je ne sais quoi to them, uh, the, the kind of bar you're talking about here. Uh, in in your true, mind, yes. if someone, someone said to you, what makes that, you talked about Seminole there, what makes that kind of seminal um, New York um, cocktail environment. What, what do you think it is? What What is that je ne sais quoi, uh, if that's not a, um, a contradiction asking that kind of question? What, what makes <laughs> it so special? It's, well, it is a je ne sais quoi. It's just that. It's, um, it, it's that, little, that little something. They're, the Death & Co. opened 
at a, just a specific time and place in the New York bar scene that, it, I mean, it just hit everything really correctly and honestly got very lucky in a number of ways with the, the timing and the people they were able to attract. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is obviously prioritizing not just the quality of the cocktails, the entire guest experience, you know, the, it all begins, not just, it, it begins the moment you walk up to the door, not just when you get your cocktail. And it's not just about that. It's about everything. So something about death and co people always remark on is how, how dark it is in there. It's all very candle lit. You come through black curtains and suddenly you're in a different time and place. It, it really is transformative. And I think that is something that makes it so special. You feel like right away you're completely you've been relocated both physically and chronologically <laughs> and how important is that physical environment to the enjoyment of a drink because obviously uh, the mixology is 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 what matters most you you would hope but in terms of how it feels and how it's decorated um, how significant do you think that is to our enjoyment of a cocktail i think it's Absolutely paramount. Um, I, it, it, there are certain details, the tension to everything that's happening in the room at any given time, at any bar, and it all contributes to the, the experience at large. So, I mean, you could have a delicious cocktail, but if you're in a room that's too bright or too hot in an uncomfortable chair and the bartender is not very nice and, you know, it's not, it's too loud, it, the, the experience is not going to be great. You might walk away saying, like, well, the drink was okay, but I don't know that I'd really want to go back and hang out there again. If you walk in and you instantly kind of feel like everything is clicking and everything is right, and often you don't even notice it's happening. You just know that you feel great and you're having a great time. There's a word that I like to use when it comes to cocktail service and, and kind of bar culture, and it's organoleptic, which really, it just essentially means multi-sensory. Uh, you're incorporating all of your senses all at once. So it's not just about this cocktail, it's about everything that's happening all around you at any given moment, having to come together in the perfect harmony. Mm, I think you've just defined the je ne sais quoi. <laughs> there uh, you go. Actually, <laughs> probably, yeah, organoleptic, yeah. Organoleptic. So, so, um, so London came calling with the American bar at the Savoy. Um, did you, you're from New Mexico, as you mentioned, you worked in New York. Did you have a desire to come to London? I've always loved London. I traveled and visited here before moving here. And when the opportunity presented itself, I absolutely knew that it was not something that I could say no to. I was delighted to be able to get the chance to, to come out here. It has this extraordinary history. It's uh, an incredibly famous place. It's uh, one of the most famous addresses for a, for a cocktail. Out of a, about a dozen head bartenders over its uh, long history, you were the second woman. The other woman was about 100 years before. And right. she um, was really very famous in her own right, wasn't she? Certainly, yes. Um, not only for being the first woman, but also for creating so many amazing now classic cocktails and certainly for being a woman in that era behind the bar, uh, I think was probably something pretty special. And why was she so famous? Tell us a bit about her. Uh, I mean, from, from what I've read and from everything I've heard about her, she was really quite a character. She had a lot of personality, a lot of moxie. Um, she created, as I mentioned, a number of now classic cocktails, namely the one that most people are aware of is the Hanky Panky, uh, which is one of my favorites and, and something that was requested every single day at 
at the American bar, absolutely, with good reason. Uh, just for those who aren't familiar, because not everyone listening will be a, a cocktail aficionado, uh, just tell us about the Hanky Panky. I think it was created for uh, Charles Hawtrey, wasn't it? It it certainly was, yes. So Charles Hawtrey was a, a British director, actor, producer, manager, uh, and he was a regular of Ada Coleman's and affectionately referred to her as, as Coley, her nickname. Um, and as the story goes, from what I've heard, he sat at her bar and said, Coley, I'm tired. Just give me something with a little bit of punch in it. And she cobbled together what is now known as the hanky-panky because he gave it a, a, a taste and said, by Jove, that is the real hanky-panky, and it stuck. Uh, so the drink itself is a really spirit-driven gin cocktail, kind of in the, in the vein of a martini or a martinez. Uh, so it has gin, sweet vermouth, and fernet which is kind of like a very intensely herbaceous and bitter liqueur. Mm, so it's kind of like a martini plus in a way. Exactly. Sure, yeah. A plussed up martini. Yeah, okay. I like that. We tend to regard, in the UK at least, um, cocktails as an American innovation. You're American. Is, is, is that, uh, you know, is, is it as simple as that? Did the Americans invent the cocktail? I think that generally speaking, that is kind of a, a, a blanket statement that has a lot of accuracy to it. Kind of certainly the, the cocktail culture as we now think of it or thought of it in the pre-prohibition era was cultivated in the United States. But I, I definitely don't think that we were necessarily the first people to ever put, you know, rum, lime juice and sugar together and, and think that that was something pretty special. But that said, historically, Generally speaking, it's understood that that cocktails were kind of an, uh, an American invention in broad strokes, and it, it kind of uh, it fits the stereotype of a, a, a certainly when I was growing up that, that kind of swish American New York kind of or LA for that matter kind of vibe. Um, cocktails and American culture sort of sit very neatly together, don't they? They do, yeah. Especially as you said, when you start thinking about that kind of uh, either pre-prohibition or post-prohibition feel of kind of, you know, going out on the town, getting dressed up and having a swanky night out. And I can always, when I picture that sort of, of culture, that sort of environment, almost everyone definitely has uh, a sexy little martini in their hand. It's somewhat ironic that, that I think when I think of a cocktail and I think of the the, the happiest place to enjoy a cocktail, I think of something which in my head is a speakeasy, which actually, um, having once been to, to Death & Co, is pretty much my kind of vision of a speakeasy. So it, it, it's somewhat ironic, isn't it, that um, prohibition may well have given us the perfect place to enjoy a cocktail? Sure. I mean, when you think about the, the culture that was sort of being cultivated by someone like Jerry Thomas in the pre-prohibition era, that all got completely thrown out the window during during prohibition. But that also was a time when people realized this is actually an important part of our culture and our ability to to gather and celebrate. And uh, similarly to if you think of a weird parallel of you know all the the lockdowns we've clearly experienced in the last few years, you realize not being able to come together, not being able to to celebrate in the ways that you want. Are, something really is lost in your day-to-day life. And when prohibition happened, I think there was something similar going on in, in a number of responses. You know, people 
wanting to to be able to enjoy their lives in the way that they wanted. And um, as a result, afterwards, of course, you know, now we have the cocktail revival, which I couldn't be happier about. I bet, yeah. Uh, when I tend to think of that stereotype of, of that speakeasy bar, you know, I have to challenge myself because I think about that stereotype and then I think about a man behind the bar. And you've, you've spoken a lot about, uh, you know, more women doing the job that you do. Do you, do you think women are a, a kind of, and I've just confessed, you know, my stereotype has a man in it, which I'm not especially proud about. But do, do you think um, that there, there's still quite a lot of work to do on that front? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that we've come a very long way. I know so many incredible, talented uh, female bartenders, bartenders, uh, and that are, are really helping to redefine cocktail culture moving into, you know, the, the phase that we're in right now. But there's always there's always more to be done. I, I there are plenty of, of bars here in London that I found that I am very pleasantly surprised to see full women teams. Um, you know, places like Terre and Elementary has has a strong female team behind it. Um, I went to Silverleaf the other day and it was all women behind the bar. Like there, and it's always a, I'm always pleasantly surprised when that happens. However, it would be great to not feel surprised at all. It should just feel completely normal. What do you think the reason is historically for there being an underrepresentation of, of of women doing that job behind the bar? Because I don't think anyone in their right mind would suggest that a woman couldn't mix a cocktail just as well as a man. The, it's such a good question and one for the ages as far as I'm concerned, because I mean, really it'd be the same reason there's lack of female representation in any number of industries, I suppose. Uh, but I'm very happy to say that I can see the, the a sea change coming. So what makes the perfect cocktail for you? Oh man, that's that's such a tough question. It's a big question, it's all about, I, I it's, it's a very big question, <laughs> but that's okay. I think it's all about context. It's about time and place. You know, the, the cocktail that I would want to have on a, a fancy date night is not necessarily the same as I would want to have uh, on a beach in the tropics. So really, I think context is everything. And from the perspective of the bartender, I would say the best, what makes the best cocktail is whatever is going to be just right for your guest in front of you at that moment. Uh, I think a lot of cocktail bartenders can easily get in the habit of kind of making it more about their drinks or their abilities uh, to make something cool and new and innovative rather than focusing on what it is the guest actually wants. Um, so I'm, people ask me all the time, what's your favorite drink to make? And the answer, it sounds generic, but it's completely true. My favorite drink to make is always whatever's going to make the guest happiest, um, which once again is, is all about context. You know, what, what, tastes right at 6 p.m. isn't the same as what might taste right at midnight. So it's all just kind of about where you are in your night and or your environment in general. Here's a challenge. Uh, when I go to a cocktail bar and I'm going to spend money on a lovely experience, I tend to want what I, I kind of 
feel comfortable with. In my case, I'm going to want a Negroni, a really well-made Negroni. And I'm sure you'll tell me there's nothing wrong with that, indeed. But um, how do you, uh, and I'm always slightly nervous if someone behind the bar tries to entice me towards something different, uh, uh, perhaps just a twist on a Negroni, even then I'm nervous. And, And yet, when I do it, I'm normally mightily glad that I did. So what's the secret, do you think, for encouraging customers to to experiment a little? I think an important thing that a bartender always needs to bear in mind is that they need to earn your trust. They, You didn't come there necessarily to be impressed by a bartender. A bartender shouldn't necessarily be there to show off what new concoction they've come up with. They should, you know, it's about, the, the cocktail is the, the vector to the entire experience, the entire interaction. and. I think I love when people order classic cocktails because it means they know what they like and it gives me an opportunity to earn their trust. So if I could make you one of the best Negronis you've ever had and then say, would you like another round or would you like something similar but a little different? Maybe then you will be more inclined to step outside of your comfort zone a little bit because you've had something that you already know you like and you've had a great expression of that thing and now you know that you're in capable hands. Well, my God, that that, that is exactly what happened uh, to me very recently with my second round being, okay, make me your golden Negroni because you may be the most amazing Negroni just now. So and it can only get better. It's, it's, exactly. That, that's, oh, that's, it, it works. That's how I think it should be. Yeah, no, it, it, it really works. By the way, then, we mentioned the Negroni, for me, the, the king or queen of all cocktails. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is the key? Uh, I bet you make a, 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 a mightily mean Negroni. What, what's the key to a really good Negroni? Well, I mean, a Negroni is it's one of the great things about it is its simplicity. And historically, you know, people generally are the purists want equal parts. So usually equal parts of uh, Gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. There are now so many additional sweet vermouths and gins and bitters on the market that there are an infinite number of newer permutations of these three things. So what's really fun these days is to be able to, with that same template, just equal parts of these three things, explore how diverse that combination can really be by switching up a brand that you normally go to just to give it a try and just see what what works. Um, but generally speaking, I, I'm relatively a purist. I, I like London Dry Gin, something like Carpano Antica Vermouth or, or Coqui Torino Vermouth, something like that, and Campari. With something like a Negroni where all of the ingredients are, are really big flavors, really bombastic flavors, you want expressions of those things that can stand up to one another and, and harmonize well without one overpowering the other. I read uh, when I was doing my homework, someone describe your um, signature, your style of cocktail making as dynamic minimalism. <laughs> um, uh, what do you think they meant? I, I really love that description, actually, because I think it is extremely on point. Basically, I think what that means is I tend to write recipes that are rather streamlined. And it's not because I don't love using crazy contemporary technology or making proprietary ingredients, because um, I love doing those things as well. But the drinks that I am the most proud of and tend to veer towards the most and I think have the most staying power are the ones 
typically where you can use most things right out of the bottle um, without any adulteration necessarily. And the cocktails end up being more about kind of unexpected combinations of flavors that end up working together in surprising ways rather than coming up with, you know, creating a new ingredient. Like take something that someone else has already made a wonderful example of and uh, then work with it in a way that hasn't been done before. So you would favor that over whipping up egg white, for example? Oh, egg white, I, I think, is, is something that I wouldn't shy away from necessarily. But I do get, I think, I think my general methodology is, and I may regret saying this later, but is kind of <laughs> trying, trying to work smarter, not harder. It's how can I, <laughs> instead of, you know, spending a day in, in a lab doing prep, uh, for proprietary ingredients that can only be had on a specific, in a specific site, rather being able to make drinks that can be made anywhere, anytime, so that people can make them at home. You know, they don't have to necessarily come to my bar to do it. They can easily get the ingredients. You don't have to have a culinary degree to replicate them. I want, I want bartending and, and cocktail culture and, and cocktails in general to be accessible, something for everyone. It's interesting you say that because we've just had uh, an experience of uh, around the world, uh, multiple lockdowns, uh, which have forced us uh, to stay at home, uh, meant that we couldn't go to your bar because it was illegal. You were shut. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, I think a lot of us um, kind of quite rapidly fell into um, mixing our, our own cocktails. So hearing you talking about keeping it simple would have been something that would have been very, very welcome, I think. I think so. And I got a lot of positive feedback from people. One of, one of my favorite moments of reopening uh, all the bars and restaurants in New York was when we were finally able to welcome people back at the bar and sitting in front of me. They were so excited to share all of the new drinks that they had come up with or new things that they had tried at home during lockdown that they otherwise never would have done. Making drinks accessible or creating interesting combinations that people not in the trade would necessarily think of doing, but in such a way that they are able to replicate it at home is, is great and kind of the, my, my general approach. So you're a fan of, of mixology at home then? Absolutely, yes. I think, as I said, that, you know, this is, it, it's something that can be for anyone who, who wants it. I don't think, while there is a a tier of bartending that is much more austere. Um, there's no reason that you can't enjoy that at home. It would be like saying just because you're not in the NBA means that you shouldn't be able to shoot hoops in your driveway as a kid. Not that I'm certainly not comparing myself to an NBA basketball player, but you, I think you understand the parallel there. Cocktails and, and drinking culture, I think, should be about community and, and a sharing of ideas and... Um, just about bringing people together and, and celebration. So being able to do that at home, uh, I think is extremely important and, and shouldn't require necessarily any kind of super advanced level of technical skill. Although at the same time, having spent um, the uh, various lockdowns at home, uh, you know, mixing things, trying things out, it also made me 
yeah, mightily appreciative of the person behind the bar and that extra, <laughs> we're back to je ne sais quoi again, but right. that extra flourish that they bring to the drinks. Did you find that? Did, did people say that to you when they came back to the bar? You know, we're glad you're making it. They did. They did. I mean, I, I, same thing happens at, if you go out to eat, right? If, you, if you're not the one who has to do the shopping and do all the prep and cook the meal and clean up afterwards, suddenly the, it tastes a lot better. <laughs> It does, yeah. And actually, you know, things like fish and chips, um, a total and absolute nightmare to make at home. And <laughs> the most delicious thing to have when done properly in a in a restaurant. And I think that's, you know, to an extent that's that's true of the complexity of making a really, uh, a really um, good uh, cocktail. I have to ask you about martini as well, because we touched on it earlier. Um, sure. Are you a, a gin or a vodka martini person? I... I don't discriminate. I would be delighted to find either a gin or a vodka martini in front of me. Uh, I tend to order gin martinis when I'm out, but I do love an ice cold vodka martini. Why do you tend to order a gin one? Um, I think, I mean, I, I, I am a big fan of, of vodka. I think there was a phase when a lot of cocktail bartenders were sort of, they turned their noses up at it a bit, um, at least in the New York scene. But that is thankfully... I think in the past, um, but I think it, it, it's a super important traditional ingredient that has a lot of history and a lot of, and an important time and place to use. And um, in a martini, for me, I enjoy. I love gin. It's I, to, to drink. It's probably my favorite spirit. And because there are so many different permutations of botanical blends and gins on the market and new styles of gins being released, gin martinis to me. Uh, are extremely they're very dynamic so i tend to order mine 50 50 which means equal parts gin and vermouth but there are so many different combinations and the combi the, the when you bring together whatever the combination of the gin is in conjunction with the vermouth really you end up with these very fun and exciting overall combinations to me that so i think that Gin allows for the potential for uh, some more complexity, but that said, once again, I, I adore a vodka martini. During lockdown, actually, my husband and I would make martinis all the time, and in an effort to not go overboard, we really started playing with the proportions and became big fans of actually making what we would call reverse martinis, where they have more vermouth, maybe two to one ratio of vermouth to gin, so they're not quite so hard hitting. And that was a new fun way to explore uh, all the different vermouths on the market. Mm, that's a good idea because you're bringing the, the alcohol level down a bit there. And I'm guessing in the time that you've been doing this job, you've seen more of us um, interested in where we can without compromising on the taste, bringing the alcohol down a little. Exactly. So that was the specific goal of, of doing those reverse martinis. And as you said, I think there is a, a huge uptick right now in either low or no ABV cocktails. And I think that is a really wonderful trend that I would like to see moving forward, just stay strong. And I think it will. Do you mix um, no alcohol cocktails yourself? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's becoming something that is requested all the time. And really now there are even full, full blown cocktail recipe books on how to do non-alcoholic cocktails and, and low alcoholic cocktails. And um, I think it's a, just a, a great trend. 
By the same token, the uh, across your career, looking at when you started behind the bar uh, up to now, you've basically been riding the, the the crest of the wave of that gin boom, haven't you, with those new and interesting gins from all over the place, really? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, gin has been around, obviously, forever and is going absolutely nowhere, thankfully. Being an American particularly, there's a, a huge trend of, of new producers making uh, new American gins right now, which are really cool, really fun and exciting category. Because um, you're finding less traditional botanical blends, people are experimenting with their methodologies and their flavor combinations um, and kind of brand identities and pushing the envelope out of the more traditional style of, of gin making, which has been cool to see. It's it's a great it's a great vector for that kind of experimentation as it's on in terms of the distilling side. It, it's it's easier to make not in that it doesn't require technical skill because it absolutely does. But you don't have to necessarily put it in a barrel and wait for several years to see what happens. Mm. And where are you on some of these kind of fruitier concoctions? Because I, I confess I'm a, I don't um, profess to be a, a, a gin expert, but I do um, enormously appreciate a, a really good gin. And I love experimenting, but I find some of these kind of at the the base level, some of the sort of fruitier things, a little bit lacking. Um, where where are you on the kind of uh, some of those fruitier gins? I think it's all about balance. Um, if just because something is called a gin doesn't mean that you can necessarily use it in the same way that you would use a more traditional London Dry gin or Old Tom gin. Uh, I think the important thing is to play to the characteristics of that gin and use it in a way that showcases those ingredients rather than try and jam that flavor combination into a template that you would normally use a different style of gin. It's interesting. So much of what you say kind of comes back to cooking almost, you know, that, that, that's sure. where you started. <laughs> it, it's amazing how much of that seems to be linked. Everything is back to, to um, the way you might compose a recipe for a dish. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, those parallels are strong. And given that that's how I was brought up to think about flavor and was ha- just, just happened to be learning about cocktails at the same time, I think in my mind, they're just completely, they're interchangeable. They're, com- they're inseparable. Mm, yeah, it's serendipity that you uh, ended up doing one role at the same time as, uh, as another. Did you find London a bit of a culture shock after New York, by the way? I did more than I expected to, actually. I think I very naively thought that, oh, you know, it's another big city and it's it's pre- predominantly English speaking, so I'll be fine. It, I'll, I can handle it. And it culturally, you know, it, I neglected to acknowledge in my mind before arriving, like, no, this is in fact a it is a foreign country with its own culture and own history that I need to humble myself about. So it was definitely a culture shock. Um, I think what saved me was having that long-term big city experience, being in New York for about 12 years or so, kind of certainly gets you used to the, the energy and the vibrancy of being in a place like this, even when it comes to something like understanding how to use public transportation without too much effort, that sort of thing was very helpful. But I make new discoveries every day about things that I love about the city. So. Now that I think I've kind of found my feet, I, I couldn't be happier. 
And apart from us giving not as good tips um, uh, to people in hospitality, um, how do we fare uh, uh, as customers in London? What sort of things do we do we ask for? Uh, how different are we to a typical New Yorker? Uh, I, I think I mean, more different more different than I anticipated. Once again, and that comes down to just being a, a different culture altogether. The the spirits that are popular in New York or in the U.S. aren't as popular here, which I didn't expect. Uh, and certain methodologies, certain cocktails and, and styles of cocktail making that is popular here is not nearly as popular in, in the U.S., which is not to say one is superior to the other. I think each culture, each country has really kind of found its cocktail identity and, and run with it, which is great. And you have a new role at um, Outernet. Uh, for those unfamiliar with uh, what is a, uh, a new and, and actually um, doing my homework, you know, really exciting brand, um, just tell us a bit about Outernet. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It, not very many people know much about it because it's brand new, it, which isn't to say it hasn't been in the works for quite some time, but it's really starting to see the light of day now, uh, which is extremely exciting. So the Outernet itself is kind of uh, a multimedia district, if you will, just starting just south of the Tottenham Court Road tube stop and going uh, all the way through Denmark Street. So kind of that whole city block area. It's very much related to the history of the music scene, the London music scene on Denmark Street. What my role in it is, basically we are reopening a number of, of bars and, and areas on, on that street that have been closed for some time, one of which being uh, what was known as the 12 bar. And it, that was sort of like a divey bar performance space but that was really important in, in the history of the music scene in the city. So it's where people like Adele and Libertines, Jeff Buckley, Regina Spector, et cetera, they were all discovered there. They really kind of made their name in this tiny little dive. And we're reopening this space with a, a sort of new concept, but a similar feel, sort of like a very casual, welcoming environment, but with surprisingly kind of elevated cocktails. And then what's exciting is that beneath this bar, we are opening um, something that wasn't there before, which to start off is a around 250 person venue that's going to be have a very flexible performance space. So it could be concerts, jazz, uh, comedy, drag nights, club nights, burlesque, uh, drag, anything. And that will have a more high volume cocktail bar in it and then another sort of hidden bar in the back. Then where it really gets crazy is just kept digging straight down and beneath that um, we're doing another venue which is about 1500-1600 capacity uh, for much larger, much larger names that'll have three big volume bars and then a very uh, sexy ultra luxurious VIP hidden bar behind all that as well. So it's this really, I mean, I'll go back to the word organoleptic. This is going to certainly engage all of your senses all at once, uh, all while staying true and really trying to honor the history of Denmark Street and um, every everything that that street means to so many people in the music scene. Yeah, I, I did my homework because I confess I hadn't heard of Outernet and you're obviously uh, your beverage director. So you're kind of choosing the, 
um, the, the drinks for this, what is clearly an absolutely huge project. Um, That's really right. Exciting, really exciting role for you. And actually, um, I, I was lost on the website for a bit looking at all these venues. And, and some of these are built in what for a while has been this great big hole in the ground because of cross rail. Right. Um, and it's <laughs> exactly. where I used to, it's where I used to throw myself around at, you know, G-A-Y and bang before that. They were the big nightclub spaces. And, and oh, presumably yeah. that, that, that's, that's where you're building these new, new venues, isn't it? On, on that site, exactly. on that uh, hole in the ground. Very exciting. That's right. So it is. Nothing like this really exists in the center of London. We could not be more central. The whole, the whole district is right next to center point. So nothing like this really exists in the heart of London to being able to do shows of this scale. Um, but something that we talk about all the time is how so often at these venues, you know, you go and see your favorite performer, but it's impossible to get a drink or you can't get a good drink. Um, and how can we elevate that experience and really focus on, on the guest having access to whatever they want at any given time and uh, thinking about efficiency. And within this huge complex, you know, there's going to be so many different styles of bar, which is really exciting for me because I get to kind of open up every permutation of, of bar that I've ever wanted to all at once. Uh, but it's, it's a really tremendous project and I'm very, very excited to be a part of it. Yeah, it's also uh, an enormous responsibility. Um, how on earth do you, if you've got multiple bars, multiple venues, different types of venue, how on earth do you keep yourself focused on what works for each? Time will tell. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out as I go. But, I, you know, I, I try and, and be very, very organized, very methodical and by way of, of really trying to stay true to sort of a, a thread of, of identity throughout all of them, whether it be the Ultralux VIP bar, the cocktail bar, the, any of the high volume venues, by just kind of focusing on guest experience, making sure the staff are happy, well-treated, enjoying their jobs. I think, I think it will happen pretty organically, I'm hoping. Mm, and it's back to your organoleptic thing, as you said, again, isn't Precisely. It? experience. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. And uh, as well as that, you've uh, got time to um, be in a new role, um, chairing the judges for the spirits and mixers category at the IWSC, who That's right. sponsor this programme. Um, how do you personally judge um, spirits and mixers? What are you looking for? Well, the the process in my mind of approaching the spirits and mixers together is very different than that of just the spirits on their own. Um, I think the judging of the spirits on their own it can be a, a very academic exercise. Now, adding the mixers in as a, another layer, it's not that it's not an academic process, but I think the point and the value is to consume and think about that drink from the context, from the perspective of the consumer, because that's ultimately really who you're, you're thinking of when you make the product. Um, so having someone who maybe doesn't necessarily know the things that the professionals and the judges are, what they know when they are thinking about the, the ins and outs of the nose and the mouthfeel and the proof and, and, all the kind of little idiosyncrasies that you think about when you taste the spirits on their own. Think about it from the perspective of the guest. It's what gin goes best in this gin and tonic, what, what whiskey goes best in this highball, et cetera. 
just by way of how what how enjoyable is it you know how how refreshing is it how does how does this combination of botanicals work with this particular mixer etc um so it, i think it's going to be really exciting i'm very much looking forward to it but i but i think it's a, a important process to really take guest experience and uh and the, the guest enjoyment factor into play i guess from what you're saying uh, like uh, good food and like wine which uh, I, I judge um so much of it comes down to balance as well absolutely absolutely yes and that it's it's hard to think of you know from a cocktail bartender's perspective like oh well i not what would be a balanced gin and tonic what would be a balanced whiskey highball but all that isn't necessarily something that a a guest would be concerned with but by being able to think about it academically and then make appropriate recommendations to guests it's only going to make their experience better Mm. I, I think you're going to spoil my fun with my final question because you okay. alluded earlier on to people always asking you what your favorite cocktail was and it depends on the time of, of day or where you are, etc., etc. Um, but if I, I have to ask the question because I can't have you on and not ask. Um, what <laughs> if you had, if you were forced, if you were on, you know, uh, God forbid, death row or a desert island is a nicer way of putting it. Um, what would you choose? I would definitely have a gin martini. I, I just adore them. I never get sick of them. And I've very hard pressed to ever find a time of day when I would not enjoy that. But I think my, my deathbed martini would be a two to one ratio. So nice and nice and strong with beef eater gin, Noily Pratt extra dry vermouth and a dash of orange bitters with a lemon twist. Mm. That sounds delicious. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Shannon, it, it's, uh, uh, you've made me thirsty. Um, it, it's a, a great <laughs> pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on everything you've already achieved and um, best of luck for the IWSC uh, judging, but also for the role at uh, Outernet as well, because that does sound genuinely really, uh, you know, massive and very exciting. And thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So it's time to select some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame as ever. And this week we are selecting spirits for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, You might use these uh, for some gold medal winning mixology Although, to be honest, uh, they're so good, you may prefer them neat or maybe straight up. Up to Canada first, Alberta Pure Vodka from Alberta Distillers, uh, described as glacier-born. This won a gold medal and 95 points, uh, with a judging panel saying this, a beautifully integrated and balanced example throughout. There are subtle, nuanced citrus aromas with a touch of mint, The smooth, warming palette continues this minty, fresh tingle and creates a very pleasing, full-bodied mouthfeel. The aftertaste is very pleasant with a great length and alcohol is well integrated. Or how about uh, a gin? The House of Botanicals ABZ uh, Dry Gin, or maybe it's ABZ if you're uh, American. Uh, This comes from Aberdeen, I think. Uh, The judges, including Olivier Ward, uh, something of a a giant of gin, uh, awarded this a gold medal with 95 points, saying this, 
Uh, the nose is bright and aromatic with strawberry, lemon and vanilla, leading to a journey of flavours on the palate. The strawberry and cream character continues with classic pine, citrus and herbal undertones, which balance the touch of sweetness. Well made with a touch of tea leaf on the finish. Uh, that sounds uh, delicious. Uh, or here's another option, a bit stronger, uh, to put uh, hairs on your chest. Um, Hidden Curiosities, um, Aranami Strength Gin, uh, was a gold medal winner with 96 points. Um, this one is 59% uh, ABV, uh, which is uh, Navy Strength for uh, gin. If you're wondering, uh, Aranami apparently means uh, Raging Waves in Japanese. And the judging panel included some more big names from the spirits world, uh, among them Ivan Dixon, uh, once of Harvey Nichols, and uh, Desmond Payne, MBE, uh, master distiller and the uh, custodian of Beefeater Gin. Uh, this is what they said of this one. Uh, gentle and understated, the nose has delicate, attractive aromas. The palate has excellent integration of botanicals and is both complex and also seamless. A stunning spirit with superb balance, which stands out from the crowd. Here's a whiskey to cherish. Um, Aberfeldy, 16-year-old Madeira cask, single malt Scotch whiskey from uh, John Dewar and Sons, a gold medal winner at the judging panel of whiskey experts, including Colin Hampton White, said of this, uh, sweet aromas of baked pears and pastry interwoven with notes of toasty cereal and runny honey. Uh, the palate is fragrant and presents an attractive stewed fruit character, while the finish is elegant and harmonious with a dried apricot complexity. And finally, uh, my favourite tipple, I think, cognac. And here's a high scoring one uh, from uh, the 2022 awards process. Uh, Larson VS Cognac. Uh, that's a silver medal winner with 91 points. Uh, the judges, including uh, Joel Harrison, who was on the Drinking Hour about uh, two months ago, uh, talking cognac. It's a, a great episode if you haven't heard that one. An elegantly perfumed nose and dark rounded notes. Uh, fresh pineapple and passion fruit. Delicate in texture with gentle chilli and silky tannins on the honeyed lengthy finish. Uh, was the uh, tasting note for that uh, particular cognac. And that is uh, a rather lovely place to leave it for this week. Uh, my thanks to uh, Shannon uh, for a fascinating chat about cocktails um, and also to you uh, for listening again. Uh, this now the sixth series. Thank you for your uh, continued support. Um, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, until next time, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.